the season six premiere of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, episode 90, I chat with doctors Jonathan Alexander. How can we turn a critical lens on our own pedagogical practices to see what kind of worlds are we making when we teach? And are they the kinds of worlds that our students are actually interested in? As I've gotten older, I've become less confident that the kind of world that uh, I wanted is necessarily the kind of world that our, our younger people want or that they need. And Timothy Alexiak. So there's, th- there's a difference between like, like fluffy feel-good generosity that we want to avoid and we're very, take great care to not walk down that path in this special issue with our contributors and in our introductions. But there's this, also, there's this other thing about show us how uh, there's a public pedagogy, to use Giroux's term, right? Uh, Henry Giroux's. But like, there's this public pedagogy that's involved in the process of carrying on. And our networks sometimes are severed from each other. Like what happens in a network over here? What form of carrying on over here has, has been engaged? I want to learn and we should want to learn from that and through demonstrations of that, where can we find ways to learn how to keep going? about their forthcoming special issue of QED, focusing on queer generosity. You'll hear more from Jonathan and Timothy in a bit. At the beginning of each episode, I usually start by reading a CFP or by sharing with you an innovative resource that you can implement into your research or your pedagogy. Today, though, I want to do something different. While on hiatus, I won the Cairo Service Award for the work I do on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. What an honor this is. Before you think, this guy is so self-centered, and skip ahead to the interview, please allow me to continue for a moment longer. When I started this venture, one of my goals was to build community through podcasting, a value which aligns with the Cairo Service Award. I wanted to create a space where scholars in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication could come together and talk about their research, their teaching, their life. That was the primary goal. Other goals included amplifying the work of graduate students and spending time talking about pedagogy. As the podcast expanded, we added new goals to begin a podcast carnival, to establish an annual award, which we awarded last year with a $500 prize and to start a fellowship program through our nonprofit organization. Our first fellow is working with us this spring, and we can't wait to see what they produce. I don't have an anecdotal story about the inspiration for this work. I don't have any more self-congratulatory platitudes. Instead, I want to continue the work of building community. So, I leave you with this before moving on to my interview with Jonathan and Timothy. 
Wilfredo Flores is a graduate student at Michigan State University, and he hosts a podcast called Tell Me More. Listen to their podcast. Iris Ruiz is a member of the faculty at UC Merced, and she has a podcast called The Funky Dope Podcast. Listen to their podcast. Emma Elizabeth Thorpe produces the podcast Chiroticast. She's been on this podcast, too. Listen to their podcast. Shane Wood. Shane Wood hosts Pedagogue. Listen to their podcast. Daniel Dissinger and Katie Robeson at the University of Southern California host Writing Remix Podcast. Listen to their podcast. These are just a few podcasts. There are more of us. We are a community of podcasters, a community of rhetoric and writing studies podcasters, but we would not exist without you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Now let's turn our attention to the interview. Jonathan Alexander is Chancellor's Professor of English at the University of California, Irvine where he is also Associate Dean in the Division of Undergraduate Education. He is the author, co-author, or co-editor of 21 books, including works of critical memoir and scholarly works on the fields of rhetoric and writing studies. He's currently finishing a book tentatively titled Writing and Desire. Timothy Oleksiak is a low-film assistant professor of English and the professional and new media writing program director at University of Massachusetts, Boston. His work appears in Composition Studies, Pretext, Pedagogy, Patho, College Composition and Communication, and in edited collections. He loves opera and his given chosen and emerging families. Jonathan and Timothy joined the podcast parlor to talk about their forthcoming special issue of QED focusing on queer generosity. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, who are you? <laughs> What's your name and your, uh, your pronouns if applicable? What's your institutional affiliation, your title, and your role there? Who are you, and what do you do? Timothy, after you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very kindly. So I'm Timothy Oleksiak. My pronouns are he, they. I'm an assistant professor of English at, and the professional and new media writing program director at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And I have co-edited the special, special issue of QED on queer generosity with Jonathan Alexander. And I am Jonathan Alexander, and I am professor of English at the University of California, Irvine, where I'm also an associate dean in our division of undergraduate education. And I have co-edited with Timothy Alexiak this special edition of QED on queer generosity. Uh, my pronouns are he, they. Thank you, let's jump right in. How did this special issue of QED focusing on queer generosity come to be? What is its genesis? And importantly, what exigencies are driving this work? 
I am so glad that Timothy has done some research on this because I am suffering from pandemic brain. Uh, I know it's now 2022. I keep wanting to write 2020. I don't know why. And then it's I, real I realized, yeah, I realized, oh, I'm writing 2020 because that's when I feel like life stopped. So I, my sense of time is completely shot to hell. Uh, but I know that that Timothy has actually done a little bit of digging in the uh, social media archive to find when we first started talking about this particular project. So Timothy, please archive I away. I, um, Jonathan and I, and I have been communicating by a Facebook messenger. So I did a search uh, for um, collaboration or special issue. I can't remember what the term was, but on September 13th, 2019, uh, I got uh, we were sending mutual admiration uh, messages uh, or, or something like that. And uh, Jonathan said, I hope you have a chance to collaborate at some point in the future. And <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, I want to take this opportunity. I, let's, let's do this. And so our, we started talking very casually. Um, three days later, actually, I was like, yes, let's do a special issue uh, um, for there is another journal that we had in mind that um, has regular special issues. And we were like, let's get this, let's move fast, let's see what we could do. And um, uh, we even asked people if they would be interested and like uh, people we knew who would be interested. And I think our, our focus there was um, key terms in, in queer rhetoric um, or just queer retors and like, what can we do with this? And what can we say? Let's give people a person or an, uh, a group and see what they could do with it. Just kind of very loose ideas. Um, and September 19th, uh, you know, it's just before things started going to hell. And so there was this, this kind of pause in that, the, the, the feeling of rushing for that journal um, kind of in other things in our lives kind of put everything, made us slow down a little bit more. Um, but that interest in wanting to collaborate, um, I've been an admirer, an admirer of Jonathan's work uh, for a long time now. And um, we, just, we just kept in loose contact and then when, about this particular thing. And then when uh, things started settling a little bit, I forget the initial point of contact, but we said, hey, let's do this. And then we went, oh, what about QED? And um, things are really bad in the world right now. Things feel really crappy. Um, maybe we could talk about something that is not so drab, uh, you know, and I'm a big fan of like sad and awful and like, let's, let's be melancholic and let's like hold on to what's, what's gross in the world and how does that like shift and change our, our relationships. But I also, I don't know when generosity became the thing that we were going to do. Maybe Jonathan, my story is helping jog some memories, but there's this, what are some responses that are critical, that are wonderful, that are powerful, but that also help us think queerly about generosity, connections, kindness. How do queers love at the end of the world uh, to use that uh, riff on the title of that beautiful twi twine game, queers in love at the end of the world? Um, like that's a really interesting question for me. And we just kind of ran with it. Yeah, that seems that seems about right. And and thank you, Timothy. I uh, have been a big admirer of your work as well, and I've been really uh, privileged to see some of your thinking develop uh, in a number of really 
smart, striking essays that you've published over the last several years. Um, so it's been a real, I'm just very proud to have the chance to work with you. Um, generosity, where did that come from? Um, you're right, you, you sort of, as you were talking, prompted me to remember us having a conversation in which I think, especially as the pandemic was just getting started, we were really trying to think about what does it mean to care for each other at this, at this particular time? And, you know, cast your mind back, right? The beginning of the pandemic, we're also deep into the Trump presidency. There is a tremendous amount of bad rhetorical vibing going on everywhere. This is this is not a particularly good time. It is a very ungenerous time. A uh, lot of accusations, a lot of hostilities. Cruelty. Very cruelty, even. Cruelty. Toxified public sphere. Then layer into that also, you know, increased um, trauma around uh, the assault on Black lives, mm -hmm. um, on Black queer lives, on Black queer trans lives, uh, which doesn't get nearly enough uh, coverage in the media. And so you've got all of this happening. And yet, I think, I don't want to speak for Timothy, although I, I think I can say confidently that we shared about this. We also found ourselves in communities that were nurturing, that were sustaining, that we were creating spaces for ourselves uh, and for our friends, for our, our chosen families to, to, to not just weather the storm of the pandemic, but to engage in ongoing life-affirming practices of just queer survivability. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to us as we were talking that extending generosity to each other, to one another, to our friends, to our families, to our chosen communities and chosen families is perhaps one of the key hallmarks of what it means to create queer community. And we hadn't seen enough discussion about that. We get critique, we get queer critique, but what about queer generosity, which in my mind is an act of world building, right? A, a way that we build our worlds, build our communities together. So some of the stuff we were thinking about. Yeah, the other thing uh, that I'm remembering as we talk through is in this notion of community, there's this always this perennial tension between the right to radical self-determination and uh, the boundaries and contours of community and, and responsibility and in the, the being with. So that, that was also a really interesting uh, tension that was floating around in some of this, but certainly this this world making stuff and and what role does generosity play in in queer world making? It's it just really excited us and and wanted us to like it kept us really interested in moving forward. Yeah, and that's why QED seemed like the obvious journal to talk to because it is a journal of LGBTQ world making. Mm -hmm. And so how how fortuitous for us, how, how generous of uh, uh, Chuck and Tom to be willing to extend to us the, the possibility for doing, for doing this special issue. We're, we are grateful. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've mentioned generosity a few times in your responses. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What, what, are you, what is generosity, all right? What is queer generosity? How are you all thinking about this, these concepts throughout the, the introduction, of course, but also the entire special issue? 
Good question. So what is, what is queer generosity? Um, how do we operationalize it? Um, I think in, in the introduction, we, we talk about two axioms uh, that we could kind of maybe use to set an agenda for how others can take up queer generosity. Um, and what's exciting for me is the first axiom is that the, the choice between receptivity and offertory modes, so taking in and giving out, um, is we suggest a false one, that they occur at the same time. And queer generosity is, the concept is degraded uh, by a reduction to exchange economies, that I give you something in order to get something back or that you now have a debt. Um, we talk about this, the being open and being a part of that, that exchange without the responsibility to give back, without the burden to give back necessarily, but that the accepting and the giving are, are wound up in each other um, and always happening at the same time. Right. So part of that is what do we do with, with how do we think and reframe acts of giving and acts of kindness um, and things that... Um, one rhetor might say is is generous to a to an audience, um, and how do we kind of think together with offertory and and receptivity? Um, so this is maybe a, a slightly convoluted way of getting to more precise definition of what is queer generosity, but that's the first way we're thinking about this, Link, linking it. And when we think of generosity, it's often construed or framed or situated within exchange economies that are troubling to us because of the debt or the kind of burden that often accompanies these things. That makes sense. All, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, we're also thinking too, as rhetoricians about the ever evolving and developing nature of, of contemporary argument. And again, referencing that toxic public sphere in which people are clearly not generously listening to one another. They're not really paying attention. Put us in mind of some, some recent comments by people like Kathleen Fitzpatrick you know, in, a, in an MLA forum uh, published in PMLA in which uh, Kathleen's very much trying to figure out like how do you forward an idea of generous argument that might potentially interrupt some of the, if not the toxicity, at least at least some of the inability for people to to just to be attentive to one another and to be to be cognizant of different assumptions, different worldviews, different needs, different value sets. Um, with that said, I think one of the ways in which we uh, and our contributors queer that notion of argumentative generosity is by recognizing that we need to hold on to spaces for outrage, uh, that queer generosity, even in listening to one another, does not circumvent or undermine justifiable outrage or anger. Uh, our interviewee, Miriam Gerba, um, whom Timothy and I interview uh, for the special issue, I think is particularly eloquent about how giving people justified outrage it is itself a generous act because it assumes that if I, if I am acting with outrage uh, about an injustice, it, I am assuming that 
people can do better, that things can change. And, and, and that is a kind of generosity as well. So uh, I think just to complement what, what Timothy is, is saying uh, about interrupting modalities of exchange or instrumentalized giving uh, that, that assumes uh, return, I think we're wanting to interrupt any kind of um, frou-frou approach to generosity. You know, this is not just about feeling good. This is about being deeply attentive to each other, even when it hurts. And one of the exciting things to to riff off that we talk about and I the importance of being able to reflect with intentionally intention, I mean, on um, those things that we might want to dismiss as hurtful or cruel or or um, awful. So if someone is rude to us in service of their community, is there a way to reflect on the, the, the negative feelings or affects that we have to then maybe eventually or at one point see that as the gift, as a generous act, to see anger, frustration, rudeness even as, a, as an act calling us in perhaps to be different people, calling us into community in ways that, or when we're ready for it. Um, and when we're ready to do that and be a part of community responsibly, um, so I think I think reflection is also a really crucial element for us in thinking about how queer generosity might operate. That it is again, I'm going to reiterate, this is not just feel good all the time. What how do how do how are we supposed to receive these things, and what should we be doing when the gift is received in a way that, or the generous act is received in a way that might unsettle us? That's something that we need to really confront and think through as well. And reflection plays a key role. In, in that. I want to read a quote from the piece. We are at a moment when perhaps what we need most is other ways of thinking, feeling, living, being in the world. We need more models, more imaginative play, more creative possibilities, more aspirational potential. At a time of effective retrenchment in which more people than ever are putting up walls and cordoning off community out of a sense of fear, a need to protect themselves in the face of immense and uncertainty. We wonder, can anything be more generous than to open ourselves up, to offer practices of survival, to share our best creative possibilities for living together? When folks read this, I was going to say, "Mic, mic drop." All right, we're <laughs> we're good. We're done. That's 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 wonderful. Who wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they'll come on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, not, I'm I'm being overly generous to to me and to Timothy. Timothy, but thank you so much for reading that. I, it's nice to nice to hear those words mm-hmm. come back to us. Thank you so much for writing them. When folks read this work. What do you hope that they take up and take away from the special issue? I hope that first people read it, actually. You know, when you're a scholar, like, and, and when you're trying to publish and circulate ideas, you, you, you think about all the scholarship that doesn't get taken up, right? It doesn't get, get uh, engaged with. So I, ho- I, I hope that the idea of queer generosity as a term is provocative enough, uh, provocative enough for people to go, oh, let's see what this is all about. Mm-hmm. But I, 
I want to see more, more writing scholar, and it doesn't have to be, you know, peer reviewed journals, but like more tweets, more blogs, more reviews, more articles um, that tries to play out how we continue carrying on in a world that is, seeks our destruction and our ends. Um, there, there are ways of, there are rhetors, there are queer people, there are trans people who are actually living and caring for each other. And I think that um, to, to identify, to make sense of the ways in which people go on and carry on um, with kindness and generosity of spirit, I, I think are, is, is, a, is a need, is a, is a want that I have. I hope people go, oh, there's a concept here in this special issue that I wanna make more of in this context uh, so that that becomes something we start to share as scholars, not only that, you know, looking at rhetors or looking at uh, instances, but how has this concept shaped the way you approach scholarship even? I would love to see someone really be transformed by this at the level of their own writing, uh, that the, the voices and the contributors um, within the special issue makes people think differently about their own writing process even. I, I, I personally would love that kind of stuff. Um, that's a hope I have. Yeah, that's it's a, it's a great hope. Um, and I think one that certainly seems achievable. Um, I, I, I hope, my hope is that we're not asking people to do the impossible here. I don't want to think of world transformation as impossible at this particular point. And I think that one of the things that queer and trans people maybe have to offer is how our lives have so often been redolent with transformation, uh, often deeply uh, embodied and psychically probing forms of transformation just to survive in this culture. And I'm hoping that that shows people uh, kind of a larger hegemonic culture that it is possible to engage in those forms of the life affirming transformation and that all of our survival might depend upon it at this particular moment. I mean, nothing small here. I mean, <laughs> we just decided we're not, we're not, you know, like we're not, not going to pull any punches anymore. Right. <laughs> well, What's interesting, okay, that's 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 the that's the second part, I think, of that quote I read. The quote continues, it seems not only generous, but queerly generous to hold open space right now to show one another how to live differently. Isn't that what queerness is in many ways? The insistence on living differently in the face of pressures to live as everyone else does, and then to share with each other how to do so, how not just to survive, but to survive together. And this, this, so there's, there's a difference between like, like fluffy feel good generosity that we want to avoid. And we're very, take great care to not walk down that path in this special issue with our contributors and in our introductions. But there's this also, there's this right. other thing about show us how, 
uh, there's a public pedagogy to use Giroux's term, right? Uh, Henry Giroux's, but like there's this public pedagogy that's involved in the process of carrying on. And our networks sometimes are severed from each other. Like what happens in a network over here? What form of carrying on over here has, has been uh, engaged? I want to learn and we should like want to learn from that and through demonstrations of that, where can we find ways to learn uh, how to keep going? Um, I, I, I'm just really invested in that. Um, not as a responsibility that you have to teach me, right? Because that then puts this weird uh, asymmetrical kind of imbalance out that I don't like mm -hmm. to like walk down. But you're gonna keep on living, you're gonna keep on being. Uh, there, is, there is inspiration. There is moving forward with that. Uh, there is transformation that is, is infinitely doable and possible when we witness the, the experiences of generosity that others have. Um, if we're dazzled by it, if we're allowed to stand in wonder of it, um, we're not the first ones to, to suggest that if at a certain time in your life, if you're a queer and trans person and you're still alive, that's really remarkable. <laughs> that, that's still an awe-inspiring thing. But it's not this, I do what I want, right? It's not this kind of like this, arrogant individualist, I'm me and I'm gonna do me, that seems sometimes really submissive, but it's this, this thing that we could stand in wonder of and in awe of and be dazzled by. And then what does that dazzling do for us? How does that dazzlement, that wonder, that awe in the presence of these beautiful queer and trans people, these beautiful queer trans uh, communities, what does that do for us? in our own local space? How do we use that awe, that dazzlement, that wonder to, to bring something back um, it, responsibly, ethically, and with a, a sense of deep goodwill and honor and appreciation? It, it just is possible. It is possible and it's not naive either. That's what I, I get really excited about. And I'm not gonna defend any longer that this is a naive project, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. super, super possible. Um, but it's also very difficult to stand in awe, to allow yourself to be dazzled, to hold yourself open enough to, to, to be impressed, <laughs> you know, to be, to be different. Um, and I can't imagine how you do that by yourself. I can't imagine how you do that divorced from, from community. I can't imagine how you do that without actively seeking it out, right? Um, and I, I hope that this issue is, is helping people to kind of feel that excitement about being with, even as the, the mobility, the networks, the, the um, uh, borders that we construct make that very, very difficult. You know, it's still possible. And I, I really appreciate how Timothy is framing this uh this act of queer generosity as one of being willing to, to stand and wonder. Um, it's, it's not naive. It, it's in fact, incredibly difficult. And it's something that I think queer and trans people have a lot of difficulty maintaining within our communities as well. One of the reasons why I was particularly interested in working with Timothy as a, a younger scholar was to think through the intergenerationality of some of these issues. Um, as an older queer person, 
I recognize how quickly I can be out of touch with the concerns, the interests, the values of younger queer and trans folk. And so I'm eager to try to work against the, the, uh, my own sedimentation of thought and affect. Um, at the same time, I've also been in rooms with younger queer folk who look at those of us uh, who have gone through the uh, AIDS uh, epidemic um, and who have survived that and think, ah, well, you know, that's, it's, it's old hat. You know, your, 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 your issues are really no longer, no longer relevant. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, it's not particularly generous. Yeah. So how, how, how do we work this? You know, how do I interrogate my own lack of generosity? How, how do I help to generatively challenge others' lack of generosity within our communities? And doing that across intergenerational lines seems to me one of the things that was important to me to do. Whether or not that actually comes across in the text of the journal itself, other people can decide. But just in terms of my own queer practice, this was an important project to engage in, to, to push my own sense of generosity, so. Timothy, you, you turned us towards pedagogy there just for a moment. I wanna think about pedagogy. How can instructors take up some of the information in this special issue, take the knowledge and adapt it into their pedagogy or bring this into the classroom? Yeah, that's a good question. I appreciate it as someone who takes, takes teaching very seriously. Um, as an act of mentorship. Um, our special issue is not directly geared on pedagogy other than what it allows us to imagine. And, um, you know, there, there are pieces, particularly in the forum section, where humans are interacting with each other in a way that's, uh, that offers uh, not explicit instruction, right? But, you know, you can kind of go, oh, here, I'm going to hang on to this and, and, and maybe do it this way. Um, I think in the writing classroom, there are moments when I see my students composing in ways that are strange to me. And I want to resist imposing. And I think this, this call to be dazzled and call to be curious and call to, to move forward with care and kindness that is inherent in the pieces within our special issue can help us think about doing the same for our students. Um, I am a, yeah, I'll just stop there. I think that at the point of contact with students, when we sit down to write responses to them, when we structure our, uh, classroom engagements, what are the ways in which we can allow the experience of dazzlement, wonder, maintaining openness uh, to, to exist, to happen? I don't know at the level of like, here's what you do on Monday morning yet. I, I'm still thinking through that, but I'm also very much thinking that this, this sense of openness, this need to, to challenge exchange economies into something that's more like it's happening both at 
you know, receiving and giving is happening at the same time. I think that there are ways of thinking about that in the, in the work that we do. How much time do we take speaking? How much time do students take up speaking instead of giving the floor? Um, these are some pragmatic questions. I, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but these are some of the ways in which I think about bringing ideas into the classroom. If that, does that make sense? Is there anything that's like needs more precision right there? Because <laughs> I feel like I've just meandered into some some idea rather than to confront your question. No, I think that you're addressing like larger scale ideas, right? About the way that we interact with students and the way that also it could, and but but what I also took away was thinking about how it could be as simple as something as an e like an email exchange or, or something like like that. And what is what is an essay that dazzles? What is an essay, a writing prompt that will allow students to stand in awe? Right. Um, and then and then I think reflection on the experience and in not saying how have you transformed, but what are the ways in which you confront this text as someone open to transformation? I don't know what that writing prompt looks like, but that question can be really exciting to see how students work through that. Um, I don't want a thesis-driven essay. I want a dazzled, uh, you know, uh, uh, approach to transformation. I don't know what that genre is. I don't know if 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 that could be linked to any kind of public genre that I'm aware of. But like, what are the ways that students have transformed in the light of the information in the class? That's that's to me an interesting question. Does that make sense? Yeah, Jonathan, what do you think? It, it, it makes sense to me. Um, you know, and I think part of what I'm trying to wrap my mind around is how do we understand queer generosity pedagogically deployed mm -hmm. that would augment, complica complicate, complement, challenge um, more traditional critical pedagogies that are already inviting students to to collaborate to to share power to to to, to think with us to 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 honor and to value the kinds of epistemologies and knowledges that they bring into the classroom and I think all of that is all of that is there within a pedagogy of queer generosity whatever that might be I'm, I'm, I'm with Timothy that we're very much not we're not in this issue laying out a curriculum. <laughs> you know, we, we are we are trying to forward some some ideas that we think need a bit more circulation and development uh, because they highlight dimensions of uh, queer sociality, queer community, queer politics that maybe haven't gotten as much critical um, uh, attention. But your question about how might that possibly translate into a pedagogy? Um, huh. You know, there's a whole set of debates uh, within the field about what is even possible for a queer pedagogy. <laughs> so I certainly have been one of those who has uh, early wondered about the incommensurability between queerness as a position of continual disruption in some ways versus a pedagogy, which, you know, any pedagogy seems to be built upon 
um, formation, forming, um, at, at the very least, if not in fact, in some way standardizing. So if we set that kind of binary aside and say, okay, well, can we imagine a pedagogy that can still be about forming, but can also be about the possibility for disruption? That may be the most queerly generous thing that we can do for ourselves is just to start right there. It's like, how can we interrogate our own how can we turn a critical lens on our own pedagogical practices to see what kind of worlds are we making when we teach? And are they the kinds of worlds that our students are actually interested in? Um, as I've gotten older, I've become less confident that the kind of world that uh, I wanted is necessarily the kind of world that our, our younger people want or that they need. And so I'm trying to be more and more open. It's like, tell me, tell me what's inspiring you. Tell me what's animating you. What is being, what is generative for you? And, and how, can I, how can I show you not only how I respond to that, but how you can possibly connect that to your, to your vision for a survivable future? So I don't know. I don't know if that, if that quite makes sense yet, but I, I think both Timothy and I appreciate the the chance to think through, like what would be the what would be the next pedagogical step here, Timothy? What do you think? I really appreciate that uh, rumination, Jonathan. I sometimes, sometimes, so I'm starting to think that we get 16 weeks, some of us fewer. I mean, how can we work with students in a way that allows them to understand? queer generosity when motives for coming in and out of our classroom are, are not shared with us, right? Like mm -hmm. teachers have different motives for why students should be there. Right. Um, students have different motives for being there. There's, there's uh, dozens of ranges, uh, you know, types of reasons why they're there. Um, and I just, it's, it's really complicated in the boundaries of what we're given in the modern university classroom setting. Mm -hmm. um, and I, know that students have their reasons and I want them to hold on to what's good and useful for a world-making project that is um, uh, respectful. And I want them to let go of those things that are uh, gonna be a barrier to that. That tension between what's right for the individual and what's right for communities. Um, I think is, is a really, really important, hard question to deal with. But we could treat each other with, with generosity um, as we process that and try to figure out what makes sense to us as we move towards that goal. Um, so that's, that's a wish that I bring into the classroom. Um, but it bumps up against the very real thing that in the United States, a university degree is an entrant way to uh, employment. For, for many people, not always, and increasingly not always, right? It also is an entrance in a, into you know, a great deal of debt. Um, and so people have motives for being here. Um, you hope that in 16 weeks in a semester, there's something possible afterwards. You know, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm just talking, talking in circles right now, but it's, it's really difficult to take this and say, we need to survive. The classroom is a space where we try to figure out how to live in the world that is, is really complicated and really challenging. And yeah, 
that's tough. It's tough to think through that. Yeah, for sure. Let's turn, let's turn to research. Researchers who want to do this work, who want to continue the interrogations into this issue of queer generosity and other associated issues and arguments in the special issue. What are some next steps for scholars? Where should they focus their research? What should they think about next? I, I, I want to say that maybe the most generous thing that, that uh, we could do is, is uh, not answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what, why would we tell people what they should be focusing on? on <laughs> you know, we, we are hopeful that they will accept the act of generosity and just, just thinking about these issues with us. But, you know, with that, with that said, I, I, I know Timothy has some thoughts. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned them earlier a little bit. Like I want, I want, I want to know, I want to listen to what mm-hmm. others have to say. Um, and so that's what does that look like? What does that look like? That means I I want to know when you when you do that work. I mean you listener, right? <laughs> like when you do it and you think you've got it and you've taken it up, like I'm in a public institution, my you know let me know, right? So that we can then be in community as thinkers of, of queer generosity. Uh, and, and, you know, this, I, this, this published text is not an end to a stage in thinking for me, but uh, a, a way of beginning to build a community. And I don't really think a lot of people, maybe, there's a critical conversation, there's writing and responding to a literature review and all of that stuff. But this, this is a way of hailing who I think the kind of people I want around me as scholars and thinkers, as people who are gonna push forward. So and one way to do that is to look at like Google Scholar to see who's citing us, of course. And that's, that's me work, but like if, if it's interesting, we can still be in community. Um, and maybe I've just opened myself up as the junior scholar to a flood of emails and, and you know, but yeah, yeah. Um, this feels like a way to, to say to people, here's some ideas, share with me what you think, share with me how you think. Um, and part of the way we share that is by emails, but also in the print uh, uh, journals that we do. Um, even if the ideas are not jiving with you, right? Why aren't they? So that we could be in community to continue to process this together. I, I, that's the dream, right? Of any kind of scholarship for me. Um, but how and where should you go with it? I'm with Jonathan a little bit, like maybe talk about what you see as queer generosity elsewhere that our contributors haven't touched on yet, but like that's for you. And I want to be impressed by that. I want to experience it. Um, it's a taking in of other people's ideas um, as it relates to what they've took in from us, if that if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, that, that would be kind of my answer. That would be an answer right, right now. Um, I'm a very anxious uh, speaker um, by design. Um, not by design, by choice, you know, by lived experience. Um, so that's that's how I would respond to this right now yeah okay what's next 
what's next for you? What are you working on next? It could be a classroom teaching, a conference presentation. It could be, I'm about to leave here and go make dinner. What's next for you? I really want to keep working on um, peer review, student to student peer review is really an important kind of boundary for me. And I, I am continuing to work on uh, ideas that were begun in a queer praxis for peer review, which is a C's article that came out in December or sometime around there, a few, a year ago, I think. Um, I'm really interested in seeing where else that can go. And that's where my research is taking me now. And the research that Jonathan and I have done for this special issue, seeing how that kind of has shifted my thinking on student to student peer review. So that's what I'm doing outside of this project. Yeah, it sounds like fun. I look forward to seeing what you what you come up with. It's been fun to watch your ideas develop about, about peer review in particular. Um, I am finishing up uh, revisions on a book manuscript called Writing and Desire, and it has been a lot of fun to work on. Uh, it's pulling together some things that I've been thinking about for, for quite some time now around uh, the need for writing studies broadly to be a bit more cognizant of the way that desire functions uh, within not only, not only what we want writing to do or, or what we hope our writing can accomplish, um, but also uh, hopefully a little bit more critically and generatively about how desires, our desires are constantly shaped and writing is one of the, the modalities through which desires are shaped but can also be reshaped, hopefully towards more um, ethically and ecologically just ends. So it's kind of what I've been, what I've been fooling around with for for a while now. That sounds so exciting! I can't wait to to read that book. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I can't can't wait for it to be done. <laughs> I'm sure. Both projects, yeah, both projects actually sound really fascinating, especially as someone who spent the day designing a peer review workshop oh. and is very tired from that labor. <laughs> <laughs> Exhausting. Where can you, where can people find information about this QED special issue online? Oh, I think you can easily with a search engine of your choice, find QED, a journal of LGBTQ world making. Um, and I believe our former call for papers is still up and around circulating on the interwebs, but uh, Timothy, when does this issue come out? It's imminent, right? We are, we are looking at proofs right now. Yes, so. definitely. Which reminds me, I have to get those proofs back, but um, it's the, it is the next issue, not the one that's going to be published, but the one that's immediately after that. So um it's soon. Can we say soon? And you can look at uh, the QED webpage. And um, uh, yes, that. All right. Thanks so much for, um, for sitting for this interview, for collaborating on this podcast episode, for sharing your brilliance uh, with the field and the world. I appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed my interview with Drs. Jonathan Alexander and Timothy Alexia. I enjoyed talking with them and learning about their work. And I look forward to their special issue of QED soon. Here we are, the end of the episode. I'll be back next week with another new interview on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people. And we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Waccamaw Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Airtones, and Sepa Helix. I know immediately I would take tacos in a minute. I, I absolutely. Why though? Like, because uh, they're just the most delicious thing ever. Uh, that's a pretty bold claim and I don't really mean it, but it, they're just, they're on the level of like deliciousness compared to pizza. Tacos are by far above that for me. Okay, so so I, I'm I'm gonna gonna grant Timothy his his tacos, but I'm I'm gonna take pizza, just to to widen the buffet here, but not just any pizza. There is uh, I'm vegan, so trying to find good vegan pizza is a life mission, and we have found it. There is a community just to the north of where we live here in Southern California, little hole in the wall shop in a strip mall literally called vegan pizza that's the name of the store (laughs) vegan pizza and it is freaking fantastic there's one in particular uh, an indian style pizza not indian as in indigenous native american like indian like curry style pizza that is probably the very best pizza i think i've ever had ever so that's the specific pizza that i would want to take with me from vegan pizza in Garden Grove, California. If you're local here, check it out. All right, that's my plug. That's my that's my commercial advertisement. I have received absolutely no subsidy or any kind of a kickback for mentioning them. It's just my mission in life to promote vegan pizza. Okay, done. You're not including that? I hope you include all of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Just making sure. Yeah.